Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue a sermon series that we've been in, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have turned your face toward us in mercy and love. Lord, we've sang all these songs this morning about your great love, your amazing love, how awesome your mercy is and your compassion. And yet, Lord, we confess that we don't see it because uh, we're blind. We just don't get it. Lord, you're like a great feast of love for us, and yet our hearts are so shriveled and shrunken from feeding on the things of this world. Lord, we've tried to fill ourselves up with everything the world has to offer us, and we find out that it starves us instead of fills us. And so, Lord, like people with shriveled, starved stomachs, we come to you and and, and Lord, we not only need to know your love, but we need you to open up our hearts and to make space so that we could dine upon that love and feast upon it. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would do that, that you would reveal your truth to us from your word, and then by your spirit, give us a greater spiritual capacity for embracing you and worshiping you. God, we desire to worship from the heart, but you know our hearts are just so small. So, Lord, enlarge in our hearts this morning and help us to see Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> a preacher was once preaching about Jesus Christ and the fact that he is our Savior and saves us from our sins. And after he was done preaching about that, a, a man came up from the, the audience and he said, you know, I didn't like that sermon. He says, I, I don't think we should be talking about Jesus as Savior because these are modern times. You know, people aren't... Uh, you know, talking about sin anymore. If we're going to talk about Jesus, let's look at Jesus as teacher and moral example. That's who Jesus is. And the preacher said, well, if I were to preach Jesus as teacher and moral example, would you commit to following him? And the man said, well, yes, I would. That's what I'm trying to say. And so the preacher said, well, let's look at Jesus' life then. What do we know about Christ from the Scriptures? We know that he was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. Have you followed that example? The man said, well, no, of course not. I mean, who has? I mean, we've all sinned. We all stumble. And the, man said, the preacher said, well, in that case, you don't need Jesus as a teacher and example. You need Jesus as a Savior. The reality is every one of us, me first and foremost, is a sinner. 
And every one of us needs to be reconciled to God because of our sins. That's what we looked at last week. I don't know if you were here last week for that cheery, uplifting sermon <laughs> from Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Whew, that was a, a pick-me-up. Uh, look, look, look again at Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's who we are without Christ. If you take out your sermon notes for a minute, which is this little insert in your bulletin, and hang on to this. We'll be going back and forth between this and the Bible today. It says on the front, who were we without Jesus Christ? And here's a little summary from last week. We were number one, dead in our sins. We were, number two, enslaved. We followed the ways of the world. We followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We followed the desires and cravings of our own sinful nature. We were enslaved. And number three, we were objects of wrath. We were dead, dead in our sins, enslaved and objects of wrath. That's who we were. That's the bad news. But this morning, we come to the good news. That is the diagnosis and the disease, but this morning we come for the cure. And the cure is found in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now that's the New International Version translation. And I have to uh, say this morning, I'm not totally satisfied with it because it, it, you know, the New International Version isn't the most literal type of translation and it tries to make a more readable English uh, text. That, that's part of its goal, which is good, but sometimes it misses something. And I think one of the things it misses here is some of the drama of the original Greek structure. So what I wanted to do was to give you another translation of the Bible that has a more literal wooden uh, translation from the Greek. And so I've included that in your sermon notes. It's the RRV, the Revised Rennie Version, uh, which is another translation. It's actually, actually, it's coming out with a study Bible soon. It'll be the Lord of the Rings study Bible. Uh, <laughs> with pictures and text all matched up so you can see the spiritual implications of that great movie. Have you seen the movie, by the way? It's, it's a phenomenal. It's amazing. <clears throat> okay. A couple more weeks and I'll, I won't bring it up as much. Uh, Ephesians 2. Uh, this, is, this is how it literally reads in Greek. This is the literal structure. But God, that's the subject of the sentence, and then, before you get to the predicate or the verb, you have these intervening phrases. Being rich in mercy, through his great love with which he loved us, and though we were dead in trespasses, and then you finally get to the main verb, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the subject and verb are um, pushed apart by these intervening phrases. I don't know, it kind of feels like a drum roll to me. But God. You know, uh, being rich in mercy. Through his great love for us, though we were dead in trespasses, boom, made us alive with Christ. If we could you know, have a drummer up here do that, it, it just seems that that's sort of the feel of this. There's a, this explosion, this, um, this huge climax of an announcement. God 
has made us alive in Christ. And so that's how it starts in Greek. But God. But God. Those could be perhaps the two greatest words of the Bible. But God. We're in a bad condition. We are lost in our sins. We're dead, enslaved, objects of wrath. But God. And in the midst of this misery in which we find ourselves, God interjects Himself surprisingly, amazingly. But God. And there's this great intervention. That's the greatest words I have for you this morning. I don't know where you are, what kind of grief or misery you're, you're slogging through at this time of your life. I don't know what kind of difficult choices you're facing or what family conflict you may be in. But the two greatest words I have for you today are, but God. That what is impossible, impossible from human perspective, is totally possible when God comes into the picture. God can do anything. He can do anything but God. And that's the hope I have for you this morning is God, that God is the source of our salvation. And so if you look back at the sermon notes, what I want to look at this morning is, is number one, the source of our salvation. Then you look on the back, the nature of our salvation. So it's a two-point sermon. I know it's supposed to be three points, but I, I did a New Year's resolution. This is kind of a diet version. Um, so it's just two. So the source of our salvation, where does our salvation come from? And the answer is from God. God is the source, but God. We are lost. God saves us. Salvation comes from God. Because it can't come from us. Remember, we're dead in transgressions. And people who are in dead, who are dead can't save themselves. I mean, Paul's like driving the point home. But God, being rich in mercy through his great love with us, though we are dead in transgressions, he doesn't want us to forget that. He keeps bringing it home. We're dead in our transgressions. We're spiritually dead. We can't save ourselves. We're not, we're not spiritually wounded. We're spiritually dead. It's not that we're in the water flailing around trying to keep our head above water and, and God throws us a life preserver and we swim over and grab it. No, no. We are drowned at the bottom of the ocean, thousand feet under, and God must come and part the Red Sea and lift us up like the dead soldiers of Pharaoh and put us on the land and then breathe new life into us. We are dead. We can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. There's no amount of good works. There's no ritual you can perform, no sacrament, no penance. There's no amount of Hail Marys or Our Fathers you can pray that would ever make you right with God. There's no amount of good works. Trying to do good works to save ourselves is like trying to fix a cavity with, with teeth whitener. You know? it, it doesn't work. There's a fundamental deep problem that only God can save. And so we declare that it is God who saves. We cannot save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. God is the source of our salvation. Some of you may know um, that Salem, Massachusetts, of course, has an infamous history. It was the place of the uh, Puritanism, Puritanism sort of gone berserk. Uh, as much of a Puritan fan as I am, uh, it's, they went wild there and they, they uh, had sort of a witch hysteria. Ironically, Salem today is a center for witchcraft. I don't know if you knew that, it, which is sort of strange, but that's the, the turn of events. And on Halloween, it's a, a mecca of sorts. People make a hodge, and they come to, uh, to Salem, all these witches and pagans, and they celebrate Halloween in Salem. Well, when I was at seminary on the North Shore, uh, which is near Salem, uh, a bunch of people every year, this was kind of informally organized, would all get together, and they would go to Salem on Halloween to do street evangelism. <laughs> 
you know, hua, yeah, this guy's are, that's just hardcore. And then they would just go right down the street, the center of sort of a cult, you know, celebration, and they'd start talking to people about Jesus. And this one guy I talked to who had gone, he said, oh, it's, it's amazing, had incredible experiences. And he told about one experience where he was talking to this witch, and she says, you know, the difference between your religion and mine, she says, in your religion, God is the ruler and you are the servant. It's equalitarian. You know, there, there's none of this uh, superiority and inferiority. Just, you know, we're equal. It's 50-50. It's God and, my God and me, or, or maybe goddess. I don't know what it was, whatever. And, and you know, sometimes my, my God gives me guidance, and sometimes I give it guidance. And sometimes my God helps me, and sometimes I help my God. You know, it's a, it goes both ways. And, and there's something we have to admit that appeals to us as sinful human beings to say, yeah, you know, I don't want to be totally beholden to God. I want to, I want to give back a little bit, too. I mean, we Yankees, we don't like to be beholden to people. <clears throat> and to think that God is the 100% source of our salvation and we're the 100% recipients? Huh. And so there's something about that idea of 50-50, even 40-60, you know, even 90-10. Uh, Just let me give a little bit. No, no. Salvation comes from God. God is the one who saves. We are the ones who receive. He's the source of it. And as if that's not painfully clear enough from the text. Look back at the RRV. Uh, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, through his great love with which he loved us. So you know, Paul wants to emphasize it's because of God's mercy that he saves us. You know, we could ask the question, why does God save? Okay, we're sinners, we're lost. God is a savior. He chooses to save us. But you know, what, what motivated God to do that? Why does he go about the act of saving? And there's a temptation we have to think that the reason God saved us is because he saw something in us. It's kind of like that antique road show. You've seen this show on television where they, you know, these people bring this piece, seemingly piece of junk to the dealer, and, and the dealer says, I know this looks like a piece of junk, but you know how much this might really be worth? I don't know. You know, $10,000. Shazam! You know, it's, Wow. And there's this idea that, that maybe God can see something special. Why don't they ever show on that show, by the way? When, when, they never show this when the person comes and says, well, what's it worth? Absolutely nothing. You know, they, they never show that clip. I, I, I want to see that clip of someone just going, um, I waited in line for nine hours. Um, anyway. Oh, yeah, okay. I forgot what we're talking about. Um, so, uh, you, you know, it's not that God sees something in us. And God says, oh, there's something, there's value. And because I see that that person is worth it, I choose to save. No, no, God doesn't save us because of who we are. God saves us because of who he is. It is his own mercy. It is from within his own being that love is motivated. So that God's fundamental attitude toward us in Christ is love. That God's fundamental um, default setting toward us is mercy. That is God's attitude toward us. Compassion and grace. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. And as I was praying about this, uh, this sermon and praying for you, and especially praying for myself, which is the biggest task, uh, in thinking about what, what God would have to say to us, one of the things I was asking God is that God would communicate to us the greatness of His love. Because I think many of us, even who are Christians, still approach God as if, eh, I'm not sure. You know, you don't know if God's in the right mood or not. No, no, no. His attitude toward us is love and mercy. God is not like the fathers that some of us had growing up. He is not distant and distracted. 
God is not busy with his work. God is not busy with his hobbies. God is not an angry drunk. God does not abuse and hit his children. God is not a perfectionistic kind of father who, no matter what you do, it's never good enough. That's not the God we worship. His fundamental disposition toward his children is love and mercy and compassion. Can we displease him by our sin? Of course, we can grieve his heart. My children grieve my heart when they do the wrong thing. But, you know, it's love. That's the mercy I have toward my children. I remember the greatest experience in my life, one of the very greatest was, you know, it sounds cliched, but it's true, is when my, child, my children were born. I mean, it's, being there to watch the birth of my children is such an amazing thing. I remember when my daughter was born, it was this incredible experience where the doctor brought over this new little baby, you know, after a long night of labor and, you know, just, I didn't know anything was going on. It's the first time I'd ever seen childbirth and, um, and, and they bring this little child over and they put her in my arms and it was as if my heart grew a fifth chamber instantaneously. It was like, boop. And I suddenly was wildly in love with this little person that I'd never seen before. I mean, what in a, it's like, where did that come from? Yeah, I think it's different for guys. You know, women sort of fall in love with their babies over nine months, and it's growing inside of them, and they slowly are attaching to the baby, and, and you know, the guys are like, gee, you're getting big. I mean, that's it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the woman, she's having dreams about the baby. She's you know, thinking of, she's feeling the baby, and the guys are like, well, yeah. Uh, you, know, they, you know, it's not that they don't care. They just, we're just guys, and we have our limitations. But, but then, w- w- when they hand you the baby, I kind of felt like the nine months of connecting that my wife had happened to me all at once. And I was like, wow. You know, and I had this incredible, just love toward this thing I had never seen before. And if you would have asked me at that moment, would I die for this baby? I would have said, yes. It was just like a crazy kind of love that I had. That is the love that God has for us in Christ. It is not a skimpy love. It's not a halfway love. It's a full-on, radical, kamikaze kind of love that would even send His own Son to the cross to save us. That's the, the, the mercy. And Paul tries to communicate this throughout Ephesians. It's the super abundant love that God has for us. That is how God feels about you in Christ love and mercy. And I just pray that we would understand that. Of course, the difference is, in the case of childbirth, uh, the baby was born, and then I suddenly came alive with love. But it's just the opposite in the spiritual realm. God is full of love, and as a consequence, I am born again. It goes the other way. God is our Savior. God saves. It comes from His heart and from His mercy. Salvation comes totally in spite of us. It is God from beginning to end who rescues us. But then what is the nature of salvation? This is the second point in our sermon. The source of salvation is God. Then what is the nature of salvation? In other words, what is salvation? We keep using this phrase. We have to admit it's kind of a churchy word, kind of a church jargony word. People don't talk about having their soul saved very often, maybe in jest. So so, we have to kind of unpack these church words because there's a danger that we use them unconsciously and we don't explain them and people know what we're talking about. So what does it mean to be saved? What is the nature of salvation? Salvation is the journey from death to life. That's what salvation is. Here in Ephesians, it's from death to life. Look back at the text. But because, I'm in the NIV now. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. That's what salvation is. He made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So being saved is parallel to being raised up and made alive with Christ. And then in verse 6, he hits it again. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So just as Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, raised, ascended to the heavens and sat at the Father's right hand, so for me to be saved means that I have in some sense died, been buried, raised, and am now seated with Christ in some sense. Seated with Christ. It's taking on the life of Christ and being dead, buried, raised, ascended with him. Uh, in fact, look at a, a great text. If you put your finger here in Ephesians, and then look over at the book of Romans. It's Romans chapter 6. It's on page 1117, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Romans chapter 6, verse 11, page 1117. Paul says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, I am now dead to sin. It's, it's as if I, like Christ, died in that old life I used to live in sin. And all the stuff I used to do, it, it's dead. It's gone to me, and I'm alive to Christ. I tried to draw a picture of it here in the sermon notes. Uh, you see there's before Christ and then in Christ. And then there's the cross. Before Jesus, I lived in sin, and I was dead to God. I had no relationship with God. But then, because Jesus died on the cross for me, and by faith I grabbed a hold of that cross, now I am dead to sin, but alive in Christ. So it's a total reversal of my formal former condition. That's who I am now. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. I have a new, a new dawn with God. I was talking to someone recently who had just become a Christian in the last two years, and she was telling me how exciting Christmas is to her now. And how since she's become a Christian and been saved, Christmas has taken on a whole new meaning. She says, I used to, I used to sing all these carols. And they were nice, and they were part of Christmas. And I'm not talking about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I'm, you know, the real religious Christmas carols. And she says, I, I would sing these Christmas carols, and it was great and all. And then I became a Christian, and it's as if I had never seen these carols before. And they all came alive, and all the words meant something. Because instead of just singing some traditional thing that had sentimental value, it was now her heart singing worship to God. She went from tradition to real worship because she became a new person in Christ and had a new relationship with God. Now, does that mean that we as Christians therefore never sin or never have battles with sin? Of course not. I mean, look back at Romans... Romans 6, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. So Paul knew that we still struggle. He says, look, and so don't do that. It's not don't do that so you can get right with God. It's you're right with God, you're dead to sin, so it doesn't make any sense to do that. It's sort of contradictory. You know, why do you want to go back over to that old grave, dig it up, lift up the lid of the coffin, bring out the corpse of sin and play with it? Yuck. You're, it's dead. Live the new life. Don't, yeah, you know? Walk with Christ. That's the idea. That's the motivation for holiness. 
Not that we somehow earn favor with God, but it's because of God's favor that we desire to be holy and righteous before him. And so that is what salvation is. It is this this radical transformation, and it's difficult even to put words on it and to describe it to you, of death to life, of being under the judgment of sin, enslaved to sin, to be set free from guilt, and to live a new life. It's a total transformation. That is salvation. And you can go to church your whole life and never be saved. And, and that's the sad thing. Because it's not going to church that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a life transformation that's so powerful. God can save anybody. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or how far you've wandered. God saves sinners. That's the business he's in. Maybe you say, ah, I don't know. My case is different. Uh, you don't know me. You don't know the places I've been. You don't know the things I've done. I know we're in this nice Hingham church and everyone seems so nice. But if people really knew who I was, they'd probably toss me out the front door. Uh, because, you know, you, you got to know who I am. you got to know the, the stuff that's going on in my head. You have to know the filth and the, uh, the lewdness and the pride and the, the, the nasty thoughts and the violent thoughts I've had. If, if you knew what things go on in my head, you know, you would know that this, this salvation is not for me. And if you knew the kinds of uh, things that have come out of my mouth, the bald-faced lies I've told to people's faces, the, the critical, biting words I've said, the slander that I've spread about people, the, the negativity and the criticism, if you knew all the stuff that's come out of my mouth, you would know that this salvation stuff is not for me. And if you knew the ways I have degraded my body and abused my body with substances and degraded it with other people, I mean, you know, you know that this salvation is not for me. And if you knew the way I've wasted my time and squandered it chasing after worldly things, and if you knew uh, the hypocrisy of my religion, that I go to church but I know who I am on the inside, you would know this salvation is not for me. You don't know me. And you're right, I don't know you. But God knows you. And God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God knows who you are. And He says, whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God does know who you are. And He says, come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. God's attitude toward you is love and mercy. And so grab hold of it. I don't know what sin you've committed, but there is no sin compared to rejecting the mercy of Christ. Take all the sins of the world, all the worst ones you can think of, roll them into a ball, and that's nothing compared to saying no to the mercy of Christ. He's died for you. On the, he's, he's died on the cross for sinners. And so turn to Him and receive Him. And I'm begging you, what's holding you back? Receive Christ and be saved. It's a free gift. Take it. Take it. It's like that great parable. I'll close with this story. In Luke chapter 15. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Which would have been extremely rude and insulting in that culture. <clears throat> rude and insulting in our culture. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, 
there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, which you can imagine for a Jewish person was incredibly humiliating with kosher and everything. <clears throat> he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. You know, at least I'm going to do something, you know. I'm going to at least, yeah, I'm going to make up for it a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to be a hired man at least. But the father, uh, uh, but while he was still a long way off, the father had passion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. He didn't even get to finish his monologue, though. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Christ is calling you to be saved. Christ is calling you to trust in Him. Will you put your faith in Christ today? If so, I invite you to pray a very simple prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess that I am a sinner. And God, I know that I cannot save myself. Lord, forgive me my sins. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. God, embrace me as your son, as your daughter, and save me. And Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would communicate your great love and your great favor to us. That Lord, we would stand before you with clean consciences. That, Lord, you would set us free from all of our sin and all of our bitterness and all of our slavery to sin. Lord, that we might be awash in the mercy of Christ. Lord, speak to us and open our eyes so that we can see it. We love you. What an awesome, awesome Savior you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Praise team, would you come and lead us in a reprise?